Hello and welcome to the Psychedelics in Medicine podcast, where we discuss the future of psychedelic and alternative drug therapy with leading academics at the top of their field in all things scientific. Hello, I'm Ben Clayden, student at the University of York, studying natural sciences, specializing into neuroscience. I'm also the president of my university's Psychedelics in Medicine Society. Today, I'm here with Dr. Torsten Passi, Dr. Passi is a German psychiatrist, professor at Hanover Medical School, and is an expert in altered states of consciousness. He has investigated altered states of consciousness in his studies using nitrous oxide, cannabis, ketamine, MDMA, psilocybin, and has written extensive books on microdosing, LSD, and intactogens. Hello, welcome. Yeah, welcome. Um... Yeah, what should I say um, about me? So my background was already explained. Thanks for the nice introduction. And um, I could also mention that because of my interest, uh, interest in altered states, uh, my head of department uh, told me, oh, who is using drugs in our department? Oh, the addicts. So let, you put, let me put you over there. And therefore I gathered a lot of knowledge about addiction and about so-called addicts. I don't call them addicts anymore uh, because I have developed during the last 25 years of being in the field, I've uh, developed a much more tolerant attitude. And I was also very much looking out for since the 1990s, uh, what kind of way these people are using drugs and aren't these psychopharmacological agents which they use for a certain purpose and it led me to a much deeper understanding of the function of drugs but it also brought me away from the stigma of addicts addiction dependency and all these kind of things because i became aware that if these people use the drugs for certain purposes and very specific purposes usually so they might cope with some problems that way might be not the ideal way but we could easily critically discuss if it is ideal to go to a physician and get an antidepressant prescription it might be not as ideal too and so therefore uh, yeah, I see drugs much more these days as psychopharmacological agents, which are used for a certain purpose. And therefore, you will understand in a few minutes, I hope, why I'm also engaged in using even opioids and heroin in the treatment of some, as I see them, psychiatric patients with a certain set of symptoms. Brilliant. So I suppose if we take it a little bit back from the start, am I correct in thinking you started by studying philosophy at university? Yeah, that's then... right. So I started, yeah, I started um, to study philosophy and sociology. And at a certain point, I realized uh, that I had to become a physician or a medicine man, a better term to take. And um, I was... Yeah, very much surprised that a call reached me from somewhere. I don't need a telephone call. Um, it was more a call from God or whatever. And I was very much uh, not in favor of it because I thought, to be honest, that medical students are usually idiots just repeating uh, some formulas and uh, some terms and anatomical stuff and so on. So they just kind of not they're not reading a book they try to implement some terms in their brain and that's it there's no critical thinking there's no historical thinking but they also share the megalomania of being in the knowledge of everything you know but they are not and so it was a terror or a terrible thought to me uh, to go to study medicine and i really try to avoid it and uh, was even evaluating to do suicide instead of studying this idiot kind of stuff. And But later on, I was also somewhat fascinated by medicine and all the natural science and histology and what is all part of it. Um, and so therefore, yeah, uh, what I can also tell is about, about this is that when I showed up there, I was immediately aware that I should be a psychiatrist and I will use drugs in the treatment of patients. I mean, the so-called real drugs, not just the drugs like uh, hypertensive medications or stuff like that. And so the people were telling me I'm a crazy bastard. Uh, and I told them, no, my tradition is 30,000 years old. And uh, what do you want from me? 
And uh, all the drugs, what I'm uh, eager to make use of, uh, opium, uh, peyote, cacti, psilocybin, mushrooms, these are drugs which have been used for tens of thousands of years. And so I'm very, a very conservative physician, in fact, using just drugs which have been used for thousands of years. And so I had no problem with my self-confidence confronting all these small-minded uh, medical students. Yeah. Sorry, <laughs> amazing. That's perfect. So when you actually graduated, I assume you got through medical school. And when you actually graduated, where did you go after medicine? What did you go into? Where were you headed? Okay, so my, my specialization was obviously psychiatry. But in Germany, yeah. you have to study five years in a general way. So you have no choice. Everything is the same for every physician or ongoing physician. But later on, I was going through psychiatry and I also did then, as in my um, um, doctorate thesis about existential psychiatry coming from philosophy and phenomenology, Heidegger, Husserl, and so on. And um, I finished my uh, medical doctorate thesis and then I was going back to study um, uh, philosophy and sociology for a master. And afterwards, I was going into clinical uh, training where I did uh, my first year at uh, Zurich um, at Psychiatric University Clinic, where the first LSD trials were happened uh, in the 1940s. And afterwards, I was with Hans Karl Leuner, the leading figure in the use of hallucinogens in psychotherapy in Europe, together with Ronald Sandison from your country. And these guys were the persons who were kind of leading the psycholytic, as it was called, movement in the early 1960s in Europe. And so I was in contact since then with virtually everybody who had to do with the use of these drugs in psychotherapy. And you have to um, realize that until the 2010s, we were not able to publish therapeutic stuff for tens of years. And we were also not able to use anything, just with a very few exceptions, like Hans Karloiner, who had a permit for doing so for 50 years, and also the people in Switzerland, the Swiss Physician Society for Psycholytic Therapy, they also had some psychiatrists which had a special permit, so I was able to train and uh, to train with them and to learn from them. So I used every kind of tiny niche to do something, and then I conducted my um, own psychedelic studies, so to say, at the university, I immediately became aware the best thing to do is to tell nobody what you're doing. So even a lot of people on my departments, so employees and so on, didn't know what he, this guy was doing in the cellar over there. I had a very attractive uh, room, in fact, the uh, best room in the whole university <laughs> to conduct the study, very tasty and stuff like that. So um, yeah, but I wasn't telling anybody. And I remember that when the first email systems came out, uh, some journalists were contacting me and I, uh, I had a kind of macro, it was called at the time, so a standardized reply, which said, uh, dear blah, 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 I don't need any publicity dot kind regards, you know. And so that was my strategy to protect myself, right? because a lot of people would approach you and usually in a negative sense. Oh, he's yeah. inducing psychosis and we are in psychiatry. What is he doing? These kind of things, yeah. But I was at last very much respected also with, uh, in the university. So I got my professor, uh, professorship for that. And also it was a little funny because these guys called me even the paradise bird, you know, because of my interest and stuff, which was really obscure in the 2000s, believe me. Not hard to believe from the standpoint of today, but it was the case. And uh, so uh, at last, the, the paradise bird flew away to the Harvard University where he was invited as a visiting professor. And all my colleagues were quite jealous and said, man, nobody was ever uh, hired from, our, from Hanover Medical School to Harvard, but he was, how could that happen? You know, yeah, but the, the paradise bird was very good and able to fly. Amazing. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. Okay, so about a couple minutes ago, you also mentioned you have quite a big interest in using opioids, potentially, um, in therapy. 
Yeah. Um, and well, I'm very intrigued to discuss this, but I think yeah. before we even start discussing heroin assisted treatment in terms like yeah. that, are you able to give us a bit of a backstory into heroin, its discovery and its use, where we are now? Yeah, good point. So, um, yeah, let's start with the history. So, in the 19th century, the uh, active, active uh, ingredient from opium was extracted by a German pharmacist uh, named Zer Turner, who termed it morphine after the um, ancient god from the Greeks, Morpheus, which is a god of sleep. You know, you kind of fall asleep if you're doing too much or so How, of that drug. And uh, however, it, it was the oldest uh, psychopharmacological agent of mankind, in fact. And the opioids have been used throughout centuries, also in Great Britain, by the way, and uh, to treat psychiatric patients. And this uh, treatment practice happened uh, until the 1950s. And if you look into the, uh, the history, you can't find out any reason why they left these medications because they worked well, they never came across addiction or a certain passivity, which, was, which they were afraid of, that the patients might not do anything anymore. They never came across these problems and there are historical studies out there which have shown in retrospect by using all the old files in the hospitals that there was never a problem with opium as a treatment for depression, mania, psychosis, and so on. There was never a problem around. So I, I had no idea why they left it. It was left because of the belief at that uh, point that we better live through chemistry. So let's synthesize new substances, which will be definitely better than the old opium and so on. But in fact, opium was left for no good reason. And all the uh, substances which have been synthesized, the tranquilizers as well as the antidepressants, were in no way better than opium, in fact, even in respect to side effects. So, yeah, but this kind of belief in progress of science and clinical work, they simply believed in it and left it. So there was quite a big amount of scientific data coming to support the therapeutic effects of it, and they just stopped. Yeah, it yeah. stopped. And, uh, you have to realize that until the 1950s, there were no uh, double-blind controlled uh, trials. And so the clinical evidence was decisive and so they, they came up with new stuff and then they said, oh, this is also working well. And you know, there were no comparison studies or stuff like that. But to, to come back to the uh, Aryan thing, uh, to Aryan itself and its history. So uh, in the late 19th century, they were able to synthesize kind of morphine, but it was very much work. And so they had, uh, I mean, it was very, uh, it needed very much effort and very expensive. So they came back to the opium, uh, uh, to, to the plant, to extract it from there. But what they did is they extracted the morphine and they modified the morphine, right? It means that they came up with new substances. And one of them was heroin. It is still a debate in the history of science who first synthesized it. Was it an English guy or was it a German guy? However, they came across it but it was important that they couldn't decide who it was because if you can't decide who was the discoverer, you can't make any patent. And yeah. this is why heroin never had a patent in its whole life, so to say, even if it was distributed very much by, uh, especially the German company Merck, still today on the market as a pharmaceutical company, they distributed it world, worldwide as a pain medication and as a medication for cough. Cough. <laughs> Cold medicine. Yeah. And, at, yeah. and at that point, they had a lot of people having tuberculosis, a, a lung, heavy lung disease. And therefore, they said it seems that heroin is reducing the cough, but it's not interfering so much with the breathing mechanism, so to say, which is kind of suppressed by morphine. And that was their idea. So it's a better morphine. This is why they came up with it. Then it was discovered that you, with morphine, you can't snort it. It meant at the point in time, in the early 19th, 20th century, that the people were not able to use it. They were able to use it just by syringes and injection. There was no other way. 
And then they came up with, with heroin and that could be slaughtered. And so even the recreational users, or especially them, they were going into heroin quite a bit. And then interestingly enough, the first nation who was really dependent on heroin was the United States. And interestingly enough, they are pr very pragmatic guys over there. So the physicians decided, okay, let's try to give it to the so-called addicts by medical doctors. So they installed centers for heroin treatment in the US, even in New York, there were a few of them. And so they gave them heroin by uh, snorting or by injection in these treatment centers. And then the, the politicians from the government were approaching the American Medical Association to put that away, this treatment. They, they shouldn't use it because it's a kind of, how should I say, it's an epidemic, you know, and you shouldn't give it to your patients. And, but in America, you have these individual rights very strong. So the physicians, even the American Medical Association said to the government, no, we will not do it. This is our freedom of therapy. We don't do it. We don't prohibit it. We will go further with it because they have interviewed the physicians prescribing the heroin and they said, these people go to work, they function very well, they just need that to equilibrate themselves and there's no problem with that treatment. Why should we stop it? So that's quite an interesting point because that seems, I suppose, very far away from the general public perception of heroin, let alone within the treatment. But I think, especially I know in England, the, the general idea is you get it's an incredibly addictive and incredibly dangerous drug. And you're taught in schools to stay the hell away from it and so on and so forth. So how, well, how do you explain that? Could you answer some of that? Is heroin an addictive substance or I suppose it's more complex? How do we define additivity in that respect? Yeah, very important questions. Thanks for asking. Um, the point is how, heroin get into that bad reputation it's it's not easy to explain in the us they had the heroin epidemic at a certain point and uh, by the way the government was approaching the american medical association again they rejected it the second time but at the third approach of the government they gave in and they were kind of getting an obligation to dose them down this is not appropriate you don't dose down an insulin patient you know it's yeah, but however, even some physicians were still treating the patients were going to prison. Therefore, then it was stopped, kind of, you know. And uh, so the bad reputation, it was uh, in America, they were propagandizing that this is a very addicting drug and this is a very much of a problem. It's an epidemic. It was never comparable to alcohol or to the opium, uh, opiate um, uh, um, uh, epidemic right now in the US. It was never comparable. It was a tiny population. But they had the idea that these were bad people and they were made worse by using heroin. And there was also very much of a moral judgment. Uh, the people at this time did not realize that the patients were ill, psychiatrically ill, and therefore they took the drug to reduce their symptoms. This was not a realization at that point. They thought, okay, they are already ill and now they use a drug which makes them more ill. This, this was the uh, thing. And therefore they very much made a big deal out of it. And you could call it in retrospect, a demonization of the drug, so to say. Yeah. And therefore it got a very bad reputation. Then there was a kind of pause in between, let's say 1945 and 1970 in respect to the use of opium because they left it in psychiatry in the early 1950s. And there was no recreational use as much around. Some people were getting addicted for morphine because they had to get morphine during the second world war for their wounds and pains, right? And they were still using it further because they found it very effective to suppress the symptoms of their post-traumatic stress disorder or war neurosis as it was called at the time uh, by heroin. So you can suppress these symptoms. So there was a certain use around, but then the so-called drug wave came along, uh, ignited in the US by the hippie and, and this, uh, these kind of guys. And they later on changed to the opiates and to the amphetamines. You know, the psychedelic era, era was just from 1963 to 1967. 
And afterwards, it became a much more degenerated scene, you could say. And therefore, these drugs became much more of a problem. And the people were thinking, okay, if a guy is enslaved by the drug, which is a kind of funny paradigm, but he's enslaved by the drug to take it, so to say. So the drug was a bad guy. And right now, kind of 50, yeah, let's say in the 19, in the 2000s, we began heroin assisted treatment in Switzerland as well as in Germany. So since that time, for 30 years, we had that this demonic, demonic view of the substance. The substance enslaves you. So if you can put the substance away from the market, this enslavement will not be happened. And this was a basic theory. And this is why the prohibition was so becoming so strong. Later on, we learned that even with all the prohibitions, we can't do anything about it because the, the number of addicts was getting a little larger instead of smaller, even with the prohibition. So they came up with the idea, yeah, to be honest, they came up with the idea in the UK at first because they found, the first, some physicians found it inhumane how the people were treated uh, by the public and, and so on, uh, these so-called addicts. And so they gave them heroin in the UK. Why is that? Because in the UK, as well as in the Netherlands, these are the only countries which have allowed for a prescription of heroin since 1920. So in your country, everybody's able to prescribe it, even to addicts. Nobody's doing it. I. I put this on the British mentality. It's a little small faceted sometimes. Uh, and yeah. also very much into this demonization because of the Puritanic background, I guess, but I don't know exactly. So this is what you could talk about, I guess. And for example, some people, they're very courageous physicians in the UK, two of them, one a female, have prescribed the two addicts for years without interference with the government, et cetera. And so therefore we have we, we gained some experience in the 1980s by your courageous physicians over there. And then in the in the mid-1990s, we had the HIV epidemic worldwide. And in Switzerland, the drug use at few places were becoming so enormous and so open. Even the public could see it, that they inject there and deal there on the streets and stuff. It was became so obvious that it became a problem for the Swiss mentality and for the from the police side. And so then, at last, they they used uh, measures like, okay, we put them all in a car and bring them back to their birthplaces in Switzerland. You know, an idiot kind of measure because two days later they were back. But these primitive measures they they put it on there because they, hadn't, they were helpless. And then they came up with the idea, okay, what would happen if we would not just uh, substitute or doing maintenance treatment with methadone, what would happen if we give them heroin? Because it seems that they need much more heroin than methadone. They don't accept methadone as much. At that point, we had no idea why, because as you might have heard that around all vessels in the brain, there is a special layer, which does not let through every substance. That's you good because you, can poison, you can't be poisoned so easily. And even with your, with your food, you might have dysfunctional material in there, which can't reach the brain, which is a very complex machinery as we know. And so this special layer lets through heroin, but does not let through methadone. And so the brain is without the opiate. And why is a psychiatric patient taking an opiate? Because to calm him down or suppress symptoms which are caused in the brain. So you need the substance in the brain, not in the body periphery, right? What do the people do which take methadone? They drink alcohol, they use cannabis, they use benzodiazepines to calm down their brain, which is not affected by the opioid. And so they, at that point, they had no idea about the blood-brain barrier at much, what, what the special layer is called. Um, this came up in, since 2004. It is known that these uh, different uh, permeabilities about uh, certain substances are there. Uh, but at that point, they were aware that some people can profit from methadone. And they are the most 
heavily ill people. And how do we treat them? So they, they, they were interviewing the so-called addicts and they said to them, heroin is much better for us than methadone. We can't even live with methadone because we, it does not suppress our symptoms. And so they came to the conclusion out of police reasons at last to handle the issue there that they have to offer heroin. And then some social psychiatrists came in and have led these trials and uh, have conducted them very successfully. And this is the reason why they had established heroin assisted treatment first off in Switzerland in a systematic fashion. Thank you. So moving on from that point there, um, what actually is heroin assisted therapy? What does it look like? Are you able to paint us a picture of that? Yeah, sure. What uh, the Swiss people did and we kind of at first copied it and partially developed it further. Uh, I'm myself involved in such a treatment center. I'm right now, in fact, sitting in such a treatment center and uh, doing my work here, my daily work. And um, what I could tell you is that, so if a person is showing up and saying, okay, I can't profit from methadone. I've tried it a few times. There's no option for me. I just can buy uh, 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 heroin on the street. Would you treat me? Then we would look out for the person and put the diagnosis down after some interviews and questionnaires so that we have an idea what is the basic disturbance or symptom cluster of that patient. And if we see that this symptom cluster uh, can be suppressed very much so by heroin, and we could, uh, then we would uh, offer the treatment to the patient if he fulfills all the other criteria, which are not that much. Uh, and uh, then we would implement him in our treatment center and give him heroin. The trick with the heroin treat assisted treatment is that you don't have to be criminal to get your psychopharmacological medication anymore. You don't have to be a prostitute anymore. You don't have to do criminal acts under the pressure of getting money for your medication and these kind of things. So you are kind of um, getting dignity again. You don't have to do all these shitty behaviors. And if you offer them heroin, the criminality rates go down by more than 95%. So they don't have a dissocial personality disorder or stuff like that. They just under the pressure to get their medication. And in retrospect, it looks a little bit perverted that you have to do here with severely traumatized people, which have a lot of symptom burden. And what they, what we do is we don't accept that they say, this is the ideal medication for us. It suppresses really our symptoms. What we do is we punish them for that, that they have such a severe cluster of symptoms because of having been traumatized and mistreated their whole life. And then we tell them, you can't take the medication. We will put you in prison for doing so, for taking your medication. I mean, that's a perverted circle. But, but however, we are not the smarties of the world. We have we had years to realize all these, uh, how should I say, to complete this picture and, and to recognize what the real thing is. Because we were full of prejudices too at, the, at first. Right. We thought yeah. we, we told our department's chief for, or the department's head, for example, when he proposed this treatment, we said, no, we will not do that. Uh, we are physicians. We are not prescribing beer at the pub, you know. <laughs> you know? But, but he said he was really putting his, his, uh, uh, his uh, hands on the, on the table like this. You know, we will do that. Nobody has ever cared about this, these patients. We will do that. You know, and then we started the treatment and successively became more and more enthusiastic because what we also found is that these people never had a home, a real home where they were loved in a way unconditionally, so to say, where transparency was there, where they could understood why people behave like they behave, transparency if you want, and so on. So we try to provide an environment which is full of appropriate behavior from our side with a lot of respect, with a lot of love, with a lot of caring, with a lot of empathy. And we try to be on ice highs with the patients. It, in the former times, it has been called therapeutic community, kind of. So we work together with them on their kind of betterment. But to be clear about this, we don't press the patients to anything. If, if you will provide the right conditions, they unfold themselves. 
their salutogenetic forces are awakened again. So they, yeah, I shouldn't say that, that much, but they heal themselves somewhat. They get much, much better. They take much more, more care of them because they don't have to run behind the drug and do all these criminal acts and they more sleep on the street and stuff. They can have a flat, they can have money, they can have cl clean clothes, they can have friends again, they can have contacts to their family again, and so on and so on. So they get, I would say, 200% healthier than they were before. Or in respect to symptoms, you could say the symptoms are reduced by two thirds through the drug and the regular intake, as well as the conditions surrounding them and our support. Brilliant. Thank you. Are you able to give us a picture of what it would actually look like to be in the clinic, I suppose, from your perspective as the psychiatrist? What, what is the procedure? What does it look like? Yeah, after the patient has been accepted for treatment and is doing it on a regular basis, uh, first off, you have to think about so-called pharmacokinetics. It means how long is the drug effective for how much hours? And with, with heroin or diamorphine, as it is called formally, uh, with diamorphine, it is the case that the patient can be under the drug for six to eight hours after one injection. So you have to repeat the injection at least two times a day. And so the person is coming to the treatment centers, center two times a day. If he would be a maintenance person with methadone, he would be in the treatment center or in the physician's office for one or two minutes, just taking his drink, drinking it down and going away. But here they have to, they have to be controlled for alcohol. Then they have to wait for a few minutes until they can go into the treatment room. And then they have to inject the drug and do the procedure surrounding it. Then they sit there for a moment, let's say five to 10 minutes. Then they go out of the treatment room and go into another room where they could relax and sit around and hang around. And also we have a smoking room where they could smoke. And so they, they are there for let's say half an hour in the treatment center under our influence, if you want. You know, and so under the influence of this very humane atmosphere, so they feel better in the atmosphere and we provide their drug, so to say. And the thing is that if you count these minutes together, if you add them, so you have 60 minutes, the patient in treatment center per day. So if it comes to methadone, one time, two minutes. So we have 30 times more patient contact, so to say, in the treatment center with the patient. To put successively, you impregnate the patient with this better atmosphere, with a more uh, justice. Is it? Yeah, with more justice. Okay, justice. so the, the, yeah, so the patients come in and they experience a much more benign environment, which has a lot of features which are not known by them from their whole life, you know, and so successively they are kind of impregnated by this atmosphere. They, they can much more believe that the world is good somewhat, that there are people out there which like them and that they, you know, successively they get their dignity back and they could come into a state which they couldn't make better because this is all what they could reach under ideal conditions. And please think about it. You have the people in the treatment center 365 days per year, every day, one hour. You know, this is really an influence you have yeah. on the people. And therefore, they can get healthy by the atmosphere. So you have to take care about the atmosphere. That means you have to put down all your prejudices. You have to turn your mind in a way to love the patients instead of rejecting them, instead of criticizing them, instead of controlling them, in that, instead of thinking of them as bad guys, instead of uh, thinking always that they lie and stuff, they don't have to lie anymore because they got their stuff and they don't have to lie anymore. And we are not looking out for them, for example, like, oh, they use other materials too. That's really bad. No, we don't comment on that. You know, we hope for the better and usually they get better. And let me just provide just uh, one little anecdote. 
when I when I took over the treatment center as he had in Hanover, I have worked there for two years before, then I was becoming the head of the treatment center. So on the Friday, be, on the Monday, I would, would be the head of the new head of the treatment center. So on Friday, I put it, my people together or the employees and said to them, you know, that I will take over on Monday and blah, blah, some things will change here. And there's one significant change I want to tell you about. And then I said, you know what, uh, up from Monday, the experts will determine the dose. And the experts are not me. The experts are not you, you employees. Who is the expert? The patients. Yeah, the patients will choose the dose. And then they were, at first they were going kind of crazy, but I was the head and my professor was standing behind me and said, I think you're on the right track. And so what happened is at first when we didn't have that self-dosing, so to say, we were always arguing with the patients about the dose. They try to get more, we try to do less, it's less dangerous, blah, 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 you know. And so what happened after I introduced this new technique is we didn't have to argue anymore about the dose. And then a few months later, I was doing an average on the dosing of the patients. And you know what I saw? Because the people were criticizing me and told me, yeah, they will get higher and higher and higher and higher. No, you know what? The opposite was true. They were going down, 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 down because they didn't have to argue and fight for a higher dose. So they were thinking, what should be the appropriate dose? The fight was gone. And so they were going down. I mean, how crazy that's was that? But this that's is kind that's of absolutely fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Torsten. Um, I suppose yeah. it's yeah. also a, a very good idea for us to discuss some of the academic research that's um, within this field. And the biggest study that was done is in Germany, uh, your home country, but between 2002 and 2004, and had about 1,100 people. And obviously, it's very important. We have large sample sizes and so on and so forth. Are you able to tell us a little bit about this study? What was it targeting? What did they find out? Yeah, important. So um, as we have already mentioned in Switzerland, this treatment was going on. This could happen because the Swiss people have not uh, uh, signed the international treaties about illegal drugs. And so therefore they were much more flexible to bring it uh, on the market, so to say, as a medication. But in Switzerland, it's still up to today an experimental treatment. In Germany, they were kind of more thorough. They said, okay, let's do a medication trial, a conventional medication trial, like a pharmaceutical company want to bring up their drug. Yeah, but there was no patent, so no pharmaceutical industry interested. What they did is they financed it by the government. So the German government provided 35 million euros to conduct that study. And uh, we had seven treatment centers throughout Germany. I was part of the study. I was a leading doctor at the Hanover Trial Center uh, for this study also. It was a very comprehensive study. They were also looking out for psychological health. They were looking out for somatic health. They were looking out for social health. They were looking out for criminal actions of, of the patients and all that. And it was a comparison studies, study comparing methadone and heroin. And what we have seen is that, for example, we had to uh, follow up these patients and examine them again three years later. So after the study has been completed, and it was astonishing that 40% of the methadone group were in prison. Wow. And so, but the problem was that officially, uh, some of them, or quite a bit of them, were counted as dropouts in respect to the study, because they were not able even because of going to prison to complete the study. Yeah. And, and the perverted thing about that is if you produce a dropout in a medication study, then this person will be, uh, this uh, case will be counted uh, completely negative against the new medication. You understand? Yeah. It means you have to be so good with your new medication that you can cope for all the dropouts being in prison. And yeah. heroin was still better. So it must have been much, 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 much better. Yeah, if you put this into account. 
And what they also have found is that the health state gets much better, the psychological state gets much better, the social state gets much better. And a major finding was that the, that the criminality was going down by more than 90%. And it has been estimated that one person, a so-called heroin addict, uh, will do up to 10 uh, criminal acts in, on the average per day. Okay, if we take a conservative uh, amount uh, uh, approach, we would say, okay, 300 days per year, one, 10 criminal acts means 3,000 per year with 10 patients, it's 30,000 with 100, what we usually treat in these centers, it's, it's, it's 30,000, no, it's even more. 300,000. 300,000 less criminal acts. And this yeah. is what makes the police work less. No, it doesn't. But uh, it's it's a huge it's a huge huge reward for the society, for the juridical system, for the uh, police system, and also for all the victims. Be it people which have been stolen their uh, their wallet or or their handbag or whatever, right? And so it it's better for everybody. Absolutely fantastic. So uh, one of the objectives for this study um, was for the patients to permanently stop opiates. Is that a goal, you think, of all heroin-assisted therapy? Yeah, this is a very important question, and we have been asked that very often. So as we, what we see on a clinical level here in our treatment center is that the heroin-assisted treatment is preferred by the most ill subpopulation of the heroin using humans. And that means that you have very ill people. So they, most of them, I would say more than 90% would need their medication for their whole life. And it's therefore not our goal to put these people on abstinence. You know, if you have a, if you have a light form of diabetes, for example, you could cope with it by eating the right things. Then you don't have it. If you have a more, little bit more severe, you might have to take an oral medication, right? For coping with your diabetes. If you have severe diabetes, you have to inject insulin. And so you can compare that somewhat. So some people say, oh, this is not comparable. Yeah, but it is comparable. If you look at a new study, which has been published in the American Journal of Psychiatry, they have found with a positron emission tomography study, where you can kind of show on pictures uh, the amount of receptors of a certain kind in the brain uh, so that you can count the receptors, so to say. And they have done that with um, so-called borderline personality disorder patients, which are more than half of the population what we are treating here. And they have done the study with abstinent patients, which have never taken opiates. But what they have shown is that these patients have 30% more opiate receptors in their brains. And this is because the, what we know is that the endorphin system is mainly involved in the attachment behavior of the early child. So to think about it simply, um, you think about the kind of baby which can crawl around and it's kind of crawling away from the mother, exploring the environment, and then it, at a certain point, it becomes a little anxious and goes back to the mother into the safe haven in the mother's arms. And then if he feels protected again, the endorphins are higher at that point, then they try to explore again. And Jak Pankzep, a very prominent researcher, has done studies with monkeys, and he came up with the idea, okay, if the endorphin system is involved, let's inject them a little amount of morphine and let's look how they explore the environment. And what he found is that they could get the double distance away from the mother and for the double amount of time. Wow. So the attachment has immediately to do with that. And it seems that by epigenetic processes, which can be impacted by environmental influences, but change your genetic uh, uh, um, makeup, so to say, uh, then the, these patients might have had not enough development and response to, to develop their endorphin system appropriately. And so they are in a permanent hunger, which is expressed in the expression as amount of expression of these receptors. So in fact, they have a kind of endorphin deficit. 
So it's like a diabetes person having an endor having an insulin deficit. And so you yeah. might have a lot of patients which have to take these substances all their lives. Interestingly enough, the demonization and stigmatization of the opiates is still so much that nobody ever came up with the idea of treating borderline patients, which do a lot of self-damage, self-injuries and that and suicides to treat them with an opiate. It has a complete logic, but it's out of the range of thinking of the people. In our treatment center, we have the people coming in being already addicted on an opiate, appropriately, you could say from a certain point of view, you know, and we take over the treatment, so to say, and treat them with a systematic uh, um, application of a centrally working opiate. And we were, when we opened the treatment center, we were running around about all the maintenance doctors in Berlin and said to them, send us our most, your most complex and most hard to treat patients. We will treat them. And they, they send it harsh cases, believe me. But if these patients come into this treatment, they don't do suicide anymore. They don't do self-injuries. And they don't go to psychiatry hospitals anymore. I mean, there you can see that even the worst patients can profit so much from an appropriate medication, which serves the mechanism in the brain, which has been shown 12 years ago to be there. And nobody, you know, I stood up at a certain Congress, put it my name tag away, you know, and uh, was raising my finger and said, we are here at the borderline symposium. I would just like to mention that in our treatment center with serine-assisted treatment, we find these people so much better, you know, and these people, they go, whoa, what's that, idiot, blah, you know. Yeah, you have to cope with these kind of things. But it's still there's a demonization. Even a treatment experiment can't be done. It's like this is psychedelics uh, in the uh, former decennium. And it's incredibly, incredibly admirable work that you're doing. Um, utterly fascinating and revolutionary. Um, I think we'll start to wrap up, but one question I would like to ask is, what do you think the future of heroin-assisted treatment or diamorphine, methadone-assisted, what, what is the future of these treatments? Can you see a future for them? Yeah, sure. Uh, first off, I've already mentioned the blood brain, bar blood brain barrier and that not all, or not all of these substances really pass the blood brain barrier, which makes a difference in between them. So you can't put them in one pot. Be careful about that. We have done that in the past. We did not realize that the heroin is a much more effective psychopharmacological agent and it is specifically able to suppress the, the, all the symptoms of severely traumatized people, which develop a severe kind of PTSD, which includes depression, anxiety, psychological instability, nightmares, flashbacks, and sleep disorders. And all these symptoms can be suppressed by heroin. And we have no other medication around, even not a modern psychopharmacological agent, which what can do that. Therefore, I sometimes run around in our treatment center and tell to the, our patients, you are my heroes. And they say, oh, no, doctor, we are not heroes. We are junkies. No, 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 you are my heroes. Why should we be heroes? I said, you, in fact, rescued opiates for psychiatric pharmacotherapy because you were insisting on this very effective medication by taking it even in, in conf uh, even uh, with the threat of going to prison. Brilliant, thank you, Torsten. Um, if I could ask you one more question. Um, no. In your opinion, what needs to change in order for heroin-assisted therapy to get to a position where it can be prescribed to people that need it and where it can well, come into the public eye and change thousands of more lives than it's already changing now? Yeah, uh, so uh, if you ask for that, we need a much more tolerant climate. We, have, we need uh, to gain uh, an understanding of these uh, so-called addicts um, as psychiatrically suffering uh, patients, which are not ill wise because they use heroin. They are using heroin because they are ill. They suffer from symptoms. So we have not what is called in medicine comor comorbidity. We have 
primary morbidity. So they suffer from the psychiatric illness and then they take the drug. So drug addiction is much more a symptom and an expression of an underlying psychiatric uh, disease than uh, and the disease itself. This is also, this is not just my point of view, the main yeah. part of the addiction community or the addiction treatment community is of that opinion too. And so this has to change the, our view of the people and that they have been mistreated for tens of years. This should make us a bad conscience so that we treat them much more appropriately. And most of their dysfunctional attitudes in respect to doing criminal acts is produced by our inappropriate behavior or treatment of them. Or, and the next point is that we have to install these treatment facilities being paid by health insurance. We have that in Switzerland and we have that in Germany. And there has been a debate how many patients can profit from it because it's a very specific medication and treatment condition. So not everybody has to be treated that way, blah, blah, blah. So my opinion is, and this is not just my opinion, I have a very good argument. So I think that in Germany, uh, around 50% of the population of heroin using humans could be treated that way with very much profit. So they were coming at me, oh, you are a professor, but you're not right, blah, blah, blah about this. But I show them, you know what, look at the German speaking part of Switzerland. They have established the treatment, they have developed a tolerant approach, and they have under treatment in comparison with Germany, it would be 70,000 people in Germany to be treated with that approach. This is you know, the relative number, what they treat in Switzerland. They treat less, but their population is much less. So in yeah. comparison, it would be equivalent to 70,000 people treated in Germany. We have treatment places right now or treatment centers for a thousand. So we need 50 times more. I don't want to mention your country where it's much more uh, uh, inappropriate attitude about these yeah. humans and they much less tolerant. They much more blaming the people. And this, so in your country, at first the mentality has to be changed. And then later on, I know that, sorry for saying that, but your country has special problems with accepting science as a uh, counterweight of prejudice. You know, you know about all this stuff what happened yeah. to David Nutt and this more rational view on drugs and stuff like that, yeah. that they have uh, fired him and, and they, they are still doing inappropriate things in that respect. And so therefore this mentality has to be changed first. And then we already have the results from this very large study. Nobody has ever criticized this study because it was methodologically sound. So we have the data there, but the data are not enough to confirm the people especially in the UK and especially in the US. I think that is caused by this puritanic attitude, which is even a little bit more strict than the usual Christian attitude. And so therefore I think that all these things have to be changed. But in fact, if somebody of your administrators on a higher level would say, let's implement that. It can be implemented, there's no danger. It's the opposite, much less criminal acts, much less crude happenings around these people, much better treatment, much better for society, much better for health. I don't see any disadvantage, to be honest. Brilliant. Thank you so much um, for today, Dr. Passi. Um, this has been episode one of the Psychedelics in Medicine podcast. I hope you enjoyed. Um, and please come back for more. Take care. Yeah.